0: You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Aaron Wallace, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, you are the brand director of ThreadUp. I think some of our listeners might be familiar with ThreadUp, it's the largest online consignment store. I would love for you to describe a little bit of the scale of ThreadUp as it, as it has grown today, because I don't think people quite understand just how much is going, uh, going on over there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like a very common and fun misconception to talk about um, when people maybe have been to one of our retail stores or someone purchased something and said, I got it on ThreadUp," and they imagine something very different than it is. But uh, what it is, is the world's largest online thrift and consignment store which means uh, right now we have about 2.6 million unique items listed online. We process up to 100,000 items a day, and we sell over 35,000 brands. And then operationally, we have massive distribution centers across the country, which are the largest on-garment hanger facilities in the world, which I like to describe as like the Monsters, Inc. door factory. is kind of, if you imagine that in your mind, Filled with clothing. And it just it's a, it's yeah, really
0: things on hangers going around automatically. It, th- <laughs> my co-founder Jessie, has been to one of those facilities and just said it was like one of the most inspiring things she's ever seen.
1: It truly, it gives me chills. I'll have to share a video link after. Um, it's really, it's really neat.
0: We'll put that in the show notes. But um, so, ThreadUp, uh, you know, has only been around for a while. when did when did it launch? I actually didn't have that in my notes.
1: Ten years um, on. September 25th, we're getting ready to celebrate our birthday.
0: That's pretty exciting. And you've been with the company for just over a year. Um, you were at, an, at another company called Crossroads that people might be familiar with. I'm here in LA. I've been to uh, some of your locations, uh, of the Crossroads locations back in the yeah. day. But you, you, you were with that company for like 14 years. And I, I'm, I'm yes. guessing there was so much of uh, your experience there that kind of informed what you're doing at ThreadUp, I'm curious if you can give a little bit of background on what you did there. What got you excited about ThreadUp, and and what you do at ThreadUp today?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I started in thrift. I always say, like in the '90s, in thrift stores in college, just as like a person who loved fashion and self-expression um, and had no money. So you know that was kind of <laughs> where you landed. Um, and when I got out of college. I just got lucky and ended up at Crossroads just as, you know, this was like an interesting company and model that made sense to me, even though it was pretty far outside the mainstream at that point. And I just started out as a writer and it was a small family owned company that basically in that role, I, I did everything. I wrote training programs, I opened stores, I launched apps, you know, it was just had an opportunity to have my hands in all parts of the business. And so I stayed for a long time um, and kind of took it to where it where it was today, you know, kind of, and um, was just ready to move on to something larger. And up. I had been watching, uh, I mean, th- there was no online secondhand that was unheard of uh, for a very long time because the margins are so hard to sell used clothing. The idea of then being able to invest that into like a digital format where you're selling one of one, I just didn't understand how it could be done. So I was very interested when all these companies started popping up, probably around, Ten years ago, seven years ago, five years ago, and then there was, you know, pretty much only ThreadUp and a, a small handful of others left after the dust settled. So when I could see that they had really figured something out, I was really interested in getting involved. So that's what led me to ThreadUp about yeah, about a year and a half ago.
0: And what um, what are your responsibilities there?
1: So at ThreadUp, I oversee the brand team, the creative teams, and then I'm also heavily involved in uh, I oversee the integrated marketing team. So it's kind of all of our. Campaigns and content and organic growth. Uh,
0: you mentioned that the, this notion of the the dust settling on on the market, especially the online idea of of thrifting. And I wonder if you can you know describe from your perspective what happened there. But because I, I do remember, I, I hadn't really thought about this. But there are so many companies that tried it out, and maybe it's this investment that you were describing of like the Monsters, Inc. <laughs> place. But how do you actually? <laughs> I mean just the operational efficiency being able to photograph things, price them and all of that is so challenging. I'm guessing that's probably the reason why m- most people couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, but what was it about ThreadUp that allowed it to to survive?
1: ThreadUp is by far, you know, the most operationally data driven, intelligent company that I've witnessed and they were I think they really understood and weren't afraid of what seemed, and they were told frequently, was an impossible challenge, um, that being the operations at the scale that they would need to achieve in order to be um, a successful company. They just tackled that and have built on it and just continue to innovate, and that's what has allowed the company as a whole to continue moving forward and then to survive when others couldn't.
0: Um, I think the one of the outputs of that data-driven approach comes out in the Studies and in the reports that the company releases, these are available publicly. And I've just been—I, I don't know—I love these this type of data analysis and visualizations. And I've been pouring over it um, all morning, kind of preparing for this conversation. And it's just so fascinating. And I think where your particular area of emphasis, being you know, sustainability and, and brand overlap, I'm curious. Like, how do you get involved in? the data aspect of that? And how does data inform what you're doing?
1: I mean, yeah, we're definitely involved. I mean, obviously on the creative side, creating all those amazing visuals to tell the story of the resale report is a huge project that we take on every year and partner with our communications team. And then obviously we have like third party that, that collect all the data for us that's put into the report. But it is an amazing piece of reporting that people refer to throughout the year as kind of like industry standard for like, if you want to know what's happening in the retail sector, here it is. So yeah, I love it as as I'm glad you enjoyed it too. In terms of how I use it, it's so helpful for the resale report to come out every year and really just help us tell the story of how resale and traditional retail are changing um, with like actual real stats, the adoption rates of different generations into resale over time. I think those are really important. People know that consumers are becoming increasingly eco-conscious, but like to actually put a number to it and say 74% of millennials and Gen Zs want to buy from sustainably conscious brands. And that's like a, a, that's a real number um, that I think traditional consumers, whether you're older and you haven't bought secondhand, newer to secondhand for whatever reason, you're looking at that and going like, man, maybe I should check this out. Incredibly compelling numbers for us as like a marketer. I look at stats that are more like, we know that we're buying twice as much now compared to 20 years ago and keeping it half as long. And that's just a number that points to a larger sustainability problem and a larger end of life of garments story that I'm very interested in telling, which is like, why aren't we thinking about what happens to your clothing at the point of purchase and wanting to drive a concept of circulator, circularity in consumers' minds?
0: Yeah, and I think um, overall the... the- idea of reuse has been a theme that um, we've talked about on the podcast before with uh, companies like Eileen Fisher in Patagonia who've been on before you know in some cases they were very focused on the aspect of actually repair is that something that you take into account at at ThreadUp how do you um, manage the inventory that might be coming in that's not in perfect condition
1: yeah it's a it's a great question and it's something that we actively are always trying to find new solutions to we are interested in repair Where actually it's a conversation we have on our organic t- growth channels a lot is about extending the life of your garments via clothing care whether and also just like interesting we're having an interesting conversation about like how often you should wash your clothes um, mm. which is less frequently than people think which has been kind of a really fun conversation to have because some people are like oh that's awful and some people totally get it so those are kind of conversations we're driving on social but in terms of like what we're actually doing on the operation side. So, I mean, all the clothing that we receive, we can still only accept, only about 40 to 50% actually meet the quality standards required to resell on our core marketplace on thredUP.com. However, you know, that leaves a business just as large of clothing that we still have to figure out how to responsibly recycle or reuse. So it's a real problem that we've been working to, to crack in a way that is increasingly more sustainable. So one of the things we have is our rescues program, which is essentially exactly what you describe, is bundling items that are in need of probably smaller, minor repairs. Those aren't things that we operationally can do, but what we can do is bun- put them into to rescue boxes and super cheap prices. We don't recoup the money it costs for us just to process them, but it helps a little bit to offset that. Um, And we just sell them kind of in lots on our site to people who are willing to put in a little bit of repair in order to um, extract value from those clothing.
0: It would be cool if you could offer that as a service, but I wonder if it would be even possible really uh, in a cost-effective way that if I send you a big bag of garments and there's only half of them or like half of them need to be repaired to be sold, (laughs) like, could you just charge me or charge me a cut of whatever I make on Up or something like that. But maybe it's just not the economics of it just don't work.
1: I think that's almost like another, another business would be uh, sure. you know, because of the scale that we operate at. It's like everything just becomes this, you know, it's like giant. Um, so what seems simple is, is never seem simple is what I've learned. But yeah, I think trying to, instead of reselling, I mean, what ends up happening to, to the majority of clothing um, this, this applies to us in any charitable organization or, pro- or a for-profit organization that accepts clothing, is that what they're unable to resell generally is sold by the pound into the aftermarket, which you know is a little tricky and um, often means that those items are being shipped abroad, which has a sustainability impact that we would like to minimize by returning as much clothing as possible back domestically to minimize the impact.
0: One stat I saw somewhere, I think, in one of your reports was around how consumers are making choices um, around the resale value of the products that they buy. Is that something that is measurable? Have you, am I making that up? I feel like that's something I saw somewhere in one of your reports.
1: Yes, I know. And I can't remember what the number is off the top of my head. Apologies, but it absolutely is. Consumers are, at an increasing amount of consumers are thinking about the resale value of their clothing at the point of purchase. And that trend is rising quickly. I find that to be incredibly heartening. I just think about, you know, how you shopped 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the idea that when you went to a store and bought a dress that you were like, hmm, I need to be, this is going to really hold its value and I'm going to be able to resell this at a good return is like would never have crossed anyone's mind. The point of purchase was the point of purchase and you bought it, you wore it, you were done.
0: Well I think people you know talk about that notion when they're buying a car, or buying a house, like a big investment like that, but you yeah. know on these smaller purchases you don't think about it necessarily that way. And I remember I'm going to have to find the the link to this. I remember reading a really great blog post from someone I think who was kind of a thrifter who was giving advice on how to point out the differences between a well-made piece of clothing and one that's not. And are are there tips that you have as someone who's been in this industry for a long time about how people should evaluate like the durability of a piece of of clothing and how important that should be at the moment that they're purchasing it?
1: I've come at it from a little bit of a different point of view, which is I purchase probably 95% of what I wear secondhand to begin with. So I follow much more of a we have enough awesome clothing in the world policy. So if you start from point of purchase with secondhand, you're already having a more positive impact. But in terms of buying new and quality clothing, obviously there are brands with with good reputations that source materials sustainably and have fair work practice um, that we support. I do think that the barrier to entry for those things for quality often is price. The idea that quality and sustainable clothing should be accessible to all, I know people support, but it is not there as an industry. So, I mean, you can pay a lot of money and you can get really great quality clothing, and that's awesome. But everybody can't can't afford to do that. So, I think that's where shopping secondhand and you know thread up obviously comes into play.
0: Yeah, and as someone who works in supply chain, I have this like fascination with an idea that we would be able to kind of track every item. So when you say you're mostly buying secondhand, I think something that maybe doesn't get taken into account is like the third hand, fourth hand kind of like market that happens. And I think (laughs) ThredUp is involved in that. I don't know if you're able to track any of these things, but let's say, you know, a pair of shoes could go across many different owners over time being purchased and resold through the platform. Is that something you're able to see at all or, or think about?
1: Not as granularly as we probably would need to be in order to tell that story, which I think would be so compelling. But what I can say is, we have done things in the past where you can see where your clothing goes to just the zip code. And people love that. Mm. Um, the idea that something they sold sold to somebody in Ohio, or North Carolina, and you're sitting in California, it's just kind of interesting to imagine that item with someone else living another life. Um, It's pretty cool.
0: Well, and there's there's a chart that I would definitely share in the show notes that I think is fascinating that maps out you know, how the relative spending is happening in the industry across secondhand subscription, direct to consumer, um, you know, yeah. fast fashion, et cetera. And one thing that's growing is the the rental market as well alongside uh, secondhand. And that's a really fascinating notion because, you know, companies like Rent the Runway, the turnaround time, like that's expected, right? That any given item is going to have a life of however many uses, 10 or 20 or or something like that. But When you're talking about owned, uh, purchased items, we don't necessarily think of it that way. But really, what's the difference? I mean, at the end of the day, it's like the same inventory, essentially. Uh, You know, maybe the rental ones are a little fancier, but uh, that idea seems really powerful to me.
1: I agree. I mean, I think that there's an overall mind shift in the concept of, of ownership when it comes to clothing. And that, to your point, that is a combination of secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, you know, rental subscription. There's just all these different ways to think about your closet. And it's definitely like driving a lot of adoption. It's, it's appealing to people.
0: I know that a big part of your job is kind of the outward communication and of, you know, what ThreatUp is doing and, and just sustainability in and, and, and circular fashion. If there was something that you could just like snap your fingers and everyone would just understand, what would it be? Or like a, a different way of asking is like, are there misconceptions out there that you just wish you could eliminate?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like the simplest thing that I always go back to that people are still surprised by is for just for the U.S. economy, I think they'll manufacture about 34 billion garments this year. And of those 64% will ultimately end up in landfill. And I like to partner that stat with the idea that if everyone in the U.S. bought just one item used instead of new, um, it would be the equivalent of taking half a million cars off the road. It's it's like five, almost 6 billion pounds of um, carbon emissions. And that's, Shocking to That's me. That's pretty crazy. I know, I know. And it's such a small act, right? So instead of buying your next pair of jeans new, just buy a secondhand pair. That would that would be your contribution. It's such a small contribution done at scale that makes such an impact. I think people are just really fundamentally unaware of the overproduction issue in the garment industry. And we talk about sustainability at the point of creation, but we're still creating too much. So, you know, you really have to balance your like new clothing consumption habits with other alternatives, whether that's rental or secondhand in order to kind of stem the trend of the fashion industries.
0: When I look at the the chart that I was mentioning, the areas that are shrinking are mall brands in general. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about mall, kind of the shrinkage of of malls uh, in some of our episodes, department stores. So those two things are probably the biggest areas where things are shrinking, um, which is to be expected. But the the fast fashion seems to be relatively stable or slightly growing. That's almost like behavioral. And we've been <laughs> trained, I think, by some of these bigger fast fashion conglomerates about a certain behavior that, you know, A the products can be really inexpensive and B, you know, you're going to change your mood or style or things, you know, multiple times a year and you might want to buy things that go along with that. And how do we change the mindset you think for people who kind of maybe think of that as the default or they're maybe not even considering it. They just, that's the, that's the store that's in their area. And that's what they go to.
1: Yeah. I think the outfit of the day culture and just rise of social media and, sharing what you're wearing all the time has definitely contributed to that, like obviously in tandem with fast fashion, injecting, you know, new cheap constantly. It is just like the default behavior for a lot of people. Um, I think when I think about changing consumer behavior, I think that will come over time, but in the meantime, you have to offer a similar experience or satisfaction in order to replace consumer behaviors with a better alternative. So in my mind, at this point, I don't think it's probably reasonable just yet to say everyone stop buying fast fashion. However, if you can have the same cheap, fun, immediate treasure hunt, in our case, I think it's more fun than fast fashion, then you start to just see people shift towards a different model, but without necessarily having to say, like, I'm not allowed to have any more new clothes. So we're not trying to take the fun out of shopping. It's more like you can have fun shopping but you can do it more responsibly.
0: Yeah. I would love for you to share a little bit about what you've been um, rolling out recently with big retail partners. I, I, if you can describe a little bit about that, because that, that was in the news recently.
1: Yeah, it's been, it's been a really exciting few months, but in the last, wow, it's been less than a month, we, we officially launched Resale as a Service, which essentially powers buying and selling secondhand clothing for retailers which allows traditional retail models to join resale and extend the life of clothing. So there's kind of like two sides of it. On one side, there's big traditional retail partners, where we actually have a thread up pop up inside their store. So bringing secondhand, like literally into a traditional retail model, which just kind of injects a different energy into their stores, brings in new customers and drives repeat values, because I think repeat visits rather, just because unlike traditional retail stores, secondhand inventory, every single thing is unique and it changes, I think in store cases, weekly, on our site, hourly. So that's part of the the thrill of of shopping secondhand. And then with other resale partners, they're using ThreadUp to offer a clean out service to their customers. So they put our clean out kits into their outbound orders, which allow their customers to then clean out their closets mm. as part of their their purchase cycle. Their items are sent into ThredUp and then they're able to use the credits that they receive back to shop at either ThredUp or the brand that they partnered with in the, the beginning. So Reformation and Cuyana K- are two of our big partners on that side. So they're pretty cool partnerships.
0: Yeah, and I mean, obviously the logistical complexity of what you're doing is just a whole different kind of level of expertise that they probably don't want to get their hands in, which is, it's just so complex and not their expertise.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, you hit the nail on the head is that like, everybody wants to have resale somehow involved or like add more circularity. But quite frankly, like the infrastructure is insane. And we've spent 10 years building that backbone and building that muscle. And so now we're kind of interesting in allowing retailers to tap into that to just create a larger ecosystem of resale.
0: Personally, so we had the CEO of Poshmark on recently, and I think the the approaches are very different, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're more like peer-to-peer. It's yep. all kind of people shipping to each other, whereas ThreadUp is more centralized and is involved in the processing and organizing of the inventory, which personally is just the more more the way that I kind of think. And I think it's important that companies like yours are investing in the infrastructure that's necessary because there's an infrastructure at scale of manufacturing. So we need an infrastructure at scale for the kind of like recovery and other side of it. But has there ever been like, is that a fight or anything internally? I mean, it feels like a strong kind of mission and value of the company, but sometimes there must be the thought of, hey, wouldn't it be easier if we could just let let our customers like (laughs) ship things to each other?
1: Yeah, Um, You know, I think it was a decision made a while ago that it is like a a fundamental difference. And we do think it actually is an advantage for us and a different point of differentiation. I love Poshmark and think peer-to-peer is an awesome model. Ours is just different. And I think what it offers is total convenience. And that is
0: what
1: we want to be able to offer in order to encourage people to clean out there are just a lot of people, myself included, to be quite frank, who just are you know, not interested in taking pictures of their things and writing descriptions and monitoring the transaction and shipping this stuff, even with best intentions and knowing I'll, you'll, you'll make more money, you'll get a better return. I just don't want to invest my time that way. And I really just want to put it all in a bag. You know, we say from Gap to Gucci and get it out of my life and know that I haven't done something terrible with it, you know? I didn't throw it in the trash. I'm doing it responsibly, but, like, I just, I just want it gone. So I think being able to offer that service and be successful and offer people some money or donation or credit to shop the site feels, like, the right direction for us.
0: A lot has been written about the Marie Kondo effect. <laughs> um, and <we've laughs> There's oh, been, yeah. we can post links and stuff like that. And I know that it affected you in a big way this year with the... Um, that her netflix show i kind of feel like you can make an argument both ways about the like impact of that whether it's a good thing or a bad thing but i wonder how you perceive that or like what i mean obviously i think it's probably great in terms of like bringing a lot of inventory into thread but um do you think that long term it's raising the level of consciousness or is it just an opportunity for people to like have a big empty closet and fill it up again with a bunch of <laughs> random other stuff
1: Yeah. And I have, I have complex feelings about Marie Kondo. It was a huge impact on threat. I think it was about an 80% lift and request for cleanup kits. And we already get a huge number of requests. So that was exciting to see all of the things that were coming in from, from a viewership point of view, there was not a lot of conversation or any conversation about what people were supposed to do with their stuff when they were getting out of their life. So I know across people who work in resale sustainability, it was a little bit painful to see bags and bags of trash with no conversation about how to responsibly get rid of those items. Yeah. So I was, I was happy to see the lift to see that people were looking for that, but a little envisioning an equal or greater number of items just being tossed, which is tough whether people are then going to fill their closets with more new stuff. I don't know. I mean, I think overall it, it was a good way to highlight the crisis at this point that we're in of stuff. Um, and I think everyone's really starting to, to feel it. And you could see that resonate at scale with Marie Kondo. She, cause I mean, she had a book out, you know, several years before that. And I remember uh, I was at Crossroads at the time and there was an impact there too, but it making to you know Netflix level proportions and hitting um, a note really speaks to a larger a larger conversation that people are ready to have about um, their stuff, what they do with it, how to get rid of it. Yeah, so I actually found it quite heartening.
0: It does it does feel like there's been a, some sort of tipping point. I feel this year. I think at let at, at me you know we're involved in a lot of packaging sustainability questions and. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly. I, if I had to guess, I would say that like there's been so much polarization uh, uh, in in our politics that it's kind of forced people to pick a side. Maybe and mm. if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna have to be picking a side uh, between you know not caring about the planet and caring about the planet, I think a lot of people are sort of realizing that they care about it, and that is maybe a good thing. Um, I'm generally like not so fond of how much polarization there is. But if it helps people actually kind of strengthen their beliefs or feelings around this, it maybe it is a good thing. I hadn't
1: really thought about it in that way. But I think that's really interesting. The concept that because the nation's political system is what it is right now, that essentially people feel more on one side or another than ever before. And we know that the planet is on one side and not on the other. And so it's just more prevalent. It feels more dire. I mean, absolutely. I don't, for, for anyone who, who does care even a little bit about the environment, it feels certainly more dire now than it ever has that I remember.
0: But why just, do you, do you feel the same way as I do? Like that really, like maybe in the past 12 months, it's like hit a, a, some sort of inflection point of some kind or, or is that just something like you could say the same thing happened, you know, in the late 60s and, and then we got over that and forgot about it for, you know, 30 years? Is it just fashionable?
1: Mm, no, I think it's the adoption rates are too high and continue to trend kind of, you know, up and the right, up to the right, whether that's like from just like business point of view or what we see in our reports and um, how shopping behavior in younger generations so we can predictably say it's going to continue to grow. I think it's just hit mainstream, these kind of alternative options it's just less of a stigma now for some reason. I don't know how that suddenly became so widespread, but yeah, thinking back to just how far it's come from like crossroads days and the stigma of secondhand into 10 years ago and the stigma of secondhand that they were starting trying to overcome at up to the conversations we're having today. It's very, very different.
0: And it seems like, um, the Gen Z generation, which is just starting to enter kind of like purchasing age and being like, you know, more active members of the purchasing group are pretty much like flocking to these different platforms that uh, offer this. Yeah, And I don't know if it's just, you know, maybe a a, a combination of, I think they've been engineered since the beginning in this (laughs) like mobile friendly way, or is it that, you know, there there's more of an entrepreneurial spirit or something. I, I, I'm I'm just curious about what's your perspective on like where you see Gen Z kind of um, taking us?
1: I mean, I I place all my hopes in Gen Z having two of my own, but they're definitely like just from a numbers point of view, adopting it two and a half times faster than average. Um, Secondhand that is. And I think one in three Gen Zers will buy used apparel this year. I love that stat. I think that they have been born into a very hyper- environmentally aware generation more so than anyone else. And obviously they're like digital natives. So they have the ability to acquire information faster. And then it's also baked into most curriculums in their schools. They're just very aware of the impact of behavior on the environment. And they're they're born into a generation that has less to no stigma around secondhand clothing. And so I think these things just make sense to them Innately, more than having to be trained to accept as something new, because at this point, traditional secondhand stores have been around longer than they have, so it's they've always been here. It's it's nothing new to them.
0: You you highlight a lot of um, brands that maybe emphasize sustainability as part of their mission, or or are simply brands that you see a lot of throughput on the platform for. We have a lot of brands who listen to your people who work <laughs> at like <laughs> e-commerce fashion brands who listen to this. And I'm curious, you know, if they're thinking about what can we do in the design of our products to give them more of a of a second life or enable them to be sold. And, and is that, you know, what can they do to like participate more in a way that kind of benefits their customer and their company?
1: I mean, I would go back to the resale as a service model and look at some of the partnership. Like specifically, if you look at, if it's a traditional e-commerce company, say, um, similar to Reformation, adding the ability to clean out clothing to your business model um, helps your business by allowing them to sell out and receive credits that they can then use to make another purchase um, at your company. So it's it's a win win for everyone. So um, I think those are, are cool ways that every every brand should be investigating um, whether that's something that that can work for their business.
0: Yeah, I would love for for ThreadUp to get even more involved in the B two B side of allowing the platform to serve other brands because we obviously have examples of companies that have vertically integrated that. And we talked about Patagonia and Eileen Mm -hmm. Fisher and there's more um, of kind of like taking that whole stack and trying to, to allow their customers to, and that the, the benefit of that is that you sort of stay in within that brand's ecosystem. And so brands like that, but we've talked also about the logistical complexity of all of it. So how do we, how do we set it up because obviously brands are incentivized by repeat purchases yeah. and you know and and fast fashion has been so successful because like you know it's it's whether you want to call it planned obsolescence or just like a choice that customers are making to purchase items that are not going to last that drives repeat consumption that is, that is how companies stay afloat. So yeah. those two kind of uh, things kind of pull at each other. And I don't really know, you know, how to solve that exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like the, that's the beauty of some of these partnerships is that they drive repeat purchase just by giving them, you know, it's like sell your clothing, get credit back to the brand that you purchased from in the first place. It just It's kind of a beautiful system.
0: But if I'm an e-commerce company f- first and foremost, is there a way for me to do that?
1: Yeah, so like I was saying with Reformation, um, if you're selling if if I so if I purchase from Reformation and I get my order and I open my order and there's a clean out bag from ThreadUp in it and I fill up my bag, send it to ThreadUp, I can cash out from ThreadUp in Reformation credit and then I can use that credit to shop from Reformation oh, again. Okay. Sorry, I, maybe I didn't explain that very well. But yeah, so... It no, just, no,
0: no, it's no. Making, it's making more sense to me now. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So it is just basically plugging resale into your business model um, and driving repeat visits for that e-commerce company.
0: So like with Reformation, for example, have you seen enough of a, of a loop to kind of have any case studies or, or any data on that? Or is it still just too early to tell?
1: I don't know that we have releasable data at this point, but it's a very strong par- partnership with that's been going on for a while. I can follow up and see if there's anything we can share, but I'm I'm not aware of shareable shareable data at this point.
0: Yeah, but it would be fascinating to close the loop and see like how what, you know, what kind of lift it provided or something like that in terms of, you know, if you can keep the dollars in that ecosystem, does it incentivize some future purchases?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm curious, like, what are some other misconceptions that you see out there about sustainability or circular fashion or other things that you would wish that we could, you know, I look at the charts in your report and it's like, 2028, this is where we want to be. What are the things that we're going to need to do to get to 2028 or beyond, like, on this pace? What are the things we wish we could accomplish faster?
1: Again, where your clothes goes, bits clothing goes, um... But specifically around donations, I think that's something that we uh, that mm. the larger cons- consumers need to understand. Again, this goes back to overproduction, but what happens to your clothing when you donate it? I think a lot of people feel that their purchase behaviors are justified as long as they donate it when they're done. And it's just kind of like you wash your hands of it and you can just go out and buy more stuff. And not understanding yeah. that, you know just like us, but even more extreme, the limitations of charitable organizations, limitations being, you know, square footage of of the stores that, they, that they're able to operate, means that they can only return, you know, between 10 and 20% of what they receive back into the communities they serve, which is a staggering amount of clothing, again, that's just being kind of, you know, shipped into the aftermarket and spread around the world. So that's something that I'm really focused on trying to educate people just around the larger problem to drive obviously more adoption of secondhand and then secondarily, as we were talking about earlier, perhaps evaluating your purchase cycle and consumption habits.
0: I think one of the challenges that any brand or company that operates kind of in the sustainability area wrestles with internally all the time is is the sort of perfect is the enemy of good kind of problem where you know, you're always just like looking at the the, the problems seem so insurmountable, and the things that we need to accomplish are so like difficult that you want to shoot for something as good as possible, but that often prevents you from putting something out there that would be better. and And I'm just curious, like how you deal with that conversation internally at ThreadUp with your team or with other teams to like keep making progress, even if it's incremental at first.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, this is a struggle for everyone. I would, I would hope, but, um, there is no perfect, but yeah, I mean, so much of the, the good and the sustainability work that we do is baked into our, our business model, but that doesn't mean that like every aspect of our business is sustainable. And that struggle is real when we operate like such a tight margin, huge, challenging business to make decisions around, I mean, maybe you can help me with this, packaging, even, you know, our we have this like beautiful box that people really love our unboxing experience, but I struggle around like the sticker that's on there and uh, tissue paper mm. and, you know, how to source things to keep, how to make the entire experience as sustainable and low impact as possible, but also still deliver on the business needs um, is always something we're, yeah. you know, always chipping away at. And always evolving.
0: Well, I think, I mean, that's exactly right. I think, and, and this is, the, the, this question comes from like a real pain that I feel every single day. And we had um, Jeffrey Hollander, who's the founder of Seventh Generation on the podcast a few months ago. And, and he was really advocating for the opposite. He was saying we should spend more of our time thinking about really innovative solutions that allow us to like, um, you know, radically shift. Um, and and not do incremental solutions and i and I totally agree with him on that. I think that that we should probably spend more time on that, but also we should we should do both because we shouldn't get our get in 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 our own way like for example, this past week at Lumia, we we launched this new product category, which is like compostable uh polymalers made of renewable bioplastic. and of course, like we got some people you know commenting saying things like, well, you know, I'd rather have no packaging or I'd rather have, you know, you know, biodegradable has its own problems because either you need to know how to set up composting at home and some facilities yeah. are difficult to access and like there's a, there's a lot of issues. Um and and as soon as you like talk about it, you start to realize like everything's more complex than you initially imagined, but polymailers continue to be like one of the most vastly used packaging items in the fashion space for a bunch of reasons, some of which are environmental because it's so much lighter weight than a box and saves on carbon emissions in, in transit. So yeah. these things are never that easy. And, and <laughs> but I think that it's a net improvement to go towards renewable material sources. So why don't we take a step there while we work on you know what we can do to actually like, avoid using it altogether, if that makes sense.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree that, you know, I don't understand why those things would be mutually exclusive, like incremental improvement and large scale thinking have always kind of been the way of the world. You know, there's got to, there's the the big thinkers and there's the day to day. And both of those things are super important. It's funny. We just switched to poly mailers as well for a lot of our orders and did a ton of research and communication around it and ha- actually had like Really cool conversation, mostly on um, you know our Instagram channels where we we kind of have like more of these sorts of conversations with people. and it was a really it was really interesting. I learned so much about it. I didn't you know, one of the things I just I didn't the misconception around how to recycle the bags themselves was something that I didn't know. I was like, now I can just I know all the bags that I have been improperly. Recycling now, I can like collect and walk them to my local Trader Joe's. I was like, who knew? But yeah, and just the weight and impact of boxes that may seem like a better choice. But actually, when we weighed out all of our options, we decided the PolyMailer actually felt like the better choice for us from a sustainability and cost point.
0: But, it's yeah, complicated. It's and, and so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think that something, you know, uh, that um, needs some help and i think this is where you know having a data driven organization like threadup really like you have the power now and as you kind of uh, start using those polymeals you'll you'll be able to have more metrics around that and be able to like study that data and maybe release it in some future study but that's i think a big piece that's still missing is continuing first of all like standardizing the language that's been a big part of what we're trying to do at Lumi is just like having words that are that we can actually use that means something because uh, there's a lot of greenwashing and and words that get thrown around that don't correlate to a specific definition. Like things like biodegradable that don't really mean something specific unless you like narrowly define what biodegradable actually means because it's not. You could put a logo that you can find on Google Images that says biodegradable, but in fact, biodegradable is almost everything on earth is biodegradable <laughs> if given enough time. <laughs> so it's like, you know, there's things like that. It is not like, there's a few standards around that, but they're not commonplace enough, like some say something like FSC is, you know, an actual certification, right? Um, so these things get thrown around, and uh, it becomes really difficult to even have a conversation among people who actually care about making making improvements. I don't know if that's something that you encounter in your Process,
1: <laughs> I think yes, definitely. Well, I mean, especially when it comes to things like um, switching over packaging, or um, we were recently in a in a conversation around I can't actually like talk about the details, but it was it was something else that involved pr- anything production of of something net new, and then really looking into. We were being told this is biodegradable. I mean, it's like the exact situation, and just you know, something about it when you've been thinking about sustainability, investigating some of these things for a long time, when someone gives you a a more kind of blanket term, it immediately just like sets off a little like, I need to do some research on this. Um, And when you just get more vague answers back and can't find anything definitive anywhere, um, it kind of just falls under that, like, this is the general word we use to say that we're sustainable, but we have nothing behind it to actually like, Provide any great assurances, so I don't know. There's a lot of that out there for sure.
0: Do you have some? I don't know what the kind of the way that ThreadUp uh, works through those things internally, but um, are there principles or approaches or or things that you've found useful to talk with your team and keep making progress and not get stuck in the weeds of like again that like perfect is the enemy of good type of thinking?
1: I would say overall, as a company culture. We don't get stuck in the weeds on much of anything. It's a very forward moving culture. So when we need to get something done or take an approach to whether let's, let's stay in the packaging zone, if someone is, if from an operation side, they're looking into this, it's, there's open communication. So all the groups are looped in just like an FYI, this is happening, or we're, inv- we're looking at these options. Do you want to be involved in this? is usually how it happens. And then we'll pick it up and say, looking at it from a consumer point of view and from a sustainability point of view, like, oh, we're suddenly going to switch from paper to poly. Yeah, that's a conversation we're going to need to have with our consumers who certainly view us as a sustainable option. Like, is this sustainable? How do we feel about this? Like, we open the conversation, do the research, talk about whether we feel like it's aligned with our values and go from there. So it's like, it's very forward moving. It's very very rare we get to wrapped around the axle of things for very long.
0: That's awesome. I want to wrap up by asking, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but do you have people, resources, podcasts, magazines, online publications, books, things that you kind of go to for best practices in, in this area or, or brands that you look up to? I'd love for you to share a few threads for our listeners to explore.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, we're part of a sustainable fashion forum here in the Bay Area that we love. Um, and they're actually, you know, in terms of like just individual people that are great resources, I often will check in check in with them. I love, obviously, like Eileen Fisher and all the Patagonia work. Um, I love the Renewal Workshop up in, in Oregon and some small businesses that I look to just as inspiration for things that they're doing out in the world, like Fab Scrap and Queen of Raw. Those are, those are the ones that are coming top of mind.
0: Cool. Yeah, we'll put some links in the show notes. Is there anything else um, we should point people to? Obviously, threadup.com uh, will have the um, link in the show notes, T H R E D U um, P. Is there anything you want to point people to if they want to learn more about everything?
1: I mean, I would definitely check out the site. Check out the resale report, is probably the most comprehensive place to get a full picture of the resale industry and the trends. And then, I mean, I have to give a plug for <laughs> we're always hiring. Um, and it's, it's a pretty yeah. inspiring and stunning place to work. We're actually, this is, you know, as an aside, but we're actually getting ready to relocate our offices or moving our headquarters wow. from San Francisco to downtown Oakland. And we're in the middle of doing a historic renovation of a block of amazing Victorians um, from the late 19th century. And I think it's been a real labor of love and a real reflection of the brand that we're reclaiming and reusing um, a tremendous amount of materials in the project. Um, So it's just kind of an exciting time between funding the retail partnerships, the overall trends in resale and um, the heart of this brand it's just a, it's an exciting place to be.
0: I'm looking at your jobs page. There's a lot of data analyst positions, which is really <laughs> aligned Always, with what we were talking course, about yeah. a lot of. Yeah. But
1: there's there's others and more the marketing creative. I know we have a creative director role open um, and a few design roles. Yep. There's there's breadth. It's not just all data. We all work together. <laughs> 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 we all love I, each no, other. I didn't mean it that
0: way. But <laughs> Definitely uh, check out the careers page. There's a ton of cool jobs and it's such an inspiring company. So best of luck with everything. Um, thank you so much, Aaron.
1: Thank you.
0: Ooh, one last thing before we go. I'm talking to you at home. What's your favorite brand these days? Is there something that you think is really well made or maybe someone that you'd love for me to talk to? Send us a tweet. We are at Lumi.com. L-U-M-I on Twitter. We're making this show for you, so tell us what you want to hear and we'll make it happen. Thanks. See you next time.